So timeless are those truths that we now sing as relevant as they are today as they were when they were written uh, 2,000, 3,000 some years ago. And as the church has been singing these hymns and songs of faith, it is that which we have hope because of God's promised word. We're now turning to Colossians chapter 1 as we now read the text from verses 3 through the end of this chapter, this wonderful passage here before us that reveals one of those three character virtues of hope. Now beginning with me and hear the word of God as we read it together. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, 
and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would attend the reading and now the preaching of the Word of God with your Spirit, that you would send him in power, for it is not by might or by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, to send him in the fullness of his divine power to rest upon us and apply this, the message of the gospel, to our lives, that we would not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Grant us, O Lord, a fullness of of glorious vision of what you have set before us, that we would not shrink back, but, but rather we would increase this day in the hope set before us and the hope that is in us. Grant, O Lord, the Spirit of God to work in the applications of our own heart, encouraging us, encouraging us in the applications as the future is now bringing forth into the very present experience and as we labor and strive all the more like the Apostle Paul so that we would fill up that which remains of the sufferings of Christ, the glory of God, would go out through all of the earth as the waters do cover the sea. And so we pray that you would be glorified in this time together as we hear from you from your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we look around us today, and perhaps maybe more than any other time in our lives, People are longing for hope. We are in a stage of this coronavirus pandemic which is escalating and growing in our land and people have been already sequestered for a couple of weeks already and there may be many more weeks before this whole thing blows over. The economy is suffering major blows. People are losing their jobs and are out of work. Suicide rates are now increasing. Depression and overdosing is now at a rapid rate. And what people need in the world is hope. When I have a couple in my office, when they're going through a lot of marital trials and they feel like they're just at their wits end and the marriage is just about over and they feel there's no hope, what they need is hope. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Scripture, wrote in the 15th chapter of Romans, 
For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. Hope is one of those three Christian virtues which the Bible gives a very special emphasis to, along with love and faith. These three abide. You will find these three clustered together in several places in the New Testament, and we find them even here in the fourth and fifth verses of our passage this morning as we see this faith, then love, and now hope, which Paul will now expand upon. But what is hope? For some, in many of the way that the world looks at it, hope is just a, a wish. A mere potential of something that could be, but not necessarily a certain. Something they desire in the future that they want to come true. They wish for it to come true. For others, it's an attitude, a feeling of optimism, if you will. In the Greek mind, in the time that Paul ministered in the the first century, it was something different. As Plato would express, hope and expectations are man's projections upon his future. Man takes control of his future and acts on the basis of his present. That would be what Plato would say. That controlled a lot of the Greek thinking of the time. But biblical hope was much different than all of these. In the Old Testament, there was no neutral concept of expectation. An expectation was either good or it was bad. And therefore, it was either hope or it was fear. But the life of the righteous is grounded in hope. Hope for the Jews was always what God was doing. And there was a trustful hope in God that freed them from anxiety. And the more you hope in this biblical sense, the less you worry about what's going on around you. It gives you a longer framework for which you think about life. The Apostle Paul, who penned these words of hope in the text before us, had this Old Testament view of hope, had this biblical hope. The Apostle Paul grew up in a a Jewish home that was well acquainted with the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He was well catechized in, in their meaning, their understanding. We find later he would quote in, 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 in voluminous ways from the Torah and from the Psalms and from prophecies like Isaiah that we read this morning. Paul knew well the reality of God's good paradise in which he created in Genesis 1 and 2, in which he put man in the garden to walk with God in the cool of the day. And to fellowship and commune with God. But Paul knew really well too the reality that man disobeyed God and rebelled against Him. 
And God throws him out because of that disobedience. Paul knew well the historical narratives when the Hebrews went down into Egypt and replaying the story in this historical symbol that after 400 years of in bondage to the, a foreign land and a foreign people, that God brings them out and delivers them with a power that is supernatural, that God comes down and, and shows Himself mighty in the presence of His people to deliver them and usher them into the promised land. Paul knew well the passages of Deuteronomy which would exhort people to worship the only one true God who would restore paradise to them which they had been removed. But he also knew too well that in Deuteronomy explicitly stated in the law that Israel would turn away again to idolatry and immorality. And God would then take them out of the promised land into an exile. But after that, there would be a great restoration that would be coming. And Paul knew the history of his people well. And all these things happened like the Scripture had said that they were going to happen. And as Paul was growing up as a child, this great expectation of the restoration that was always hoped for, for which Israel was still awaiting, was current and prominent in this young boy as he grew up and became a zealot for this in his lifetime. Paul had remembered and read over and over in his childhood and through his days of the two great times when God's glory would come down upon the tabernacle and be poured out upon there where God's Shekinah glory would come down and dwell among His people. And then again when the temple was consecrated where God's glory a second time would come down and the glory light would then be present. This eternal God would be present with His earthly people. And he also knew that God had said He was going to do this again. But for Israel, that had not yet happened. And so they looked for it. They longed for it. And they hoped for it with certainty. Paul knew full well those prophecies of Isaiah, of this restoration where God promised that He would come down in this great cosmic change that He would change this world and bring in a new heavens and a new earth where heaven and earth would come and merge together like that garden paradise from which we had been cast out. As we read from Isaiah 65 earlier in the service, as Paul had known very well of the Jeremiah 31 prophecy of the new covenant that God would come and establish with His people, as Paul would reflect often on those passages in Ezekiel where it was prophesied that there would be a cleansing of his people and a restoration of his people. He had been catechized on passages like Habakkuk 2 when it says, For the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and which all of those psalms were replete with the theme. 
Israel had hope. It was a hope that was founded on God's promises. It wasn't merely a potential that they longed for. It wasn't just a desire. It wasn't just an attitude or a feeling. But this hope was founded on God and His promises and a hope that had historical markers along the way as tokens of grace that they were assured that the certainty that God had promised would come to pass. And so they waited patiently. And they endured with perseverance. With hope. But for Paul, he lived in a very exciting time in the history of Israel because he also knew very well those prophecies of Daniel. When Daniel spoke of God's Messiah coming with a fair amount of exactness that even we find that the wise men from the east were looking for a star and we know that Daniel was among the sages in Babylon and they were learning of the things that God had prophesied through Daniel. The the sages were looking for it and their timing was was very good. But Paul had read and knew of these 70 years when the Babylonian exile was prophesied would be stretched to 70 times 7. And we have the echoes of this great jubilee in Scripture where finally there would be dealt with all of those debts that had brought them into exile would be dealt with and all of the sins would be forgiven. And this was the great jubilee that was prophesied. And the Apostle Paul had a sense that he was growing up in the very time that this would happen in his lifetime. So hope for the Apostle Paul was very electric in this atmosphere and it overshadowed all of the other challenges that the nation of Israel were facing under the Roman persecution. As far as the Jews were concerned, yes, they had been delivered in one sense from that Babylonian exile after 70 years, but they were still living under a foreign dominion, under the oppression of the enemies. And they were still longing for the great exile or release from exile, the great restoration which had not yet come, even though it had been prophesied a half a millennium earlier. They long awaited for their Messiah to come into His temple to deliver them. That's what those post-exilic prophets were all about. It encouraged the people to get busy building the temple because God was prophesied that He would come as Messiah in His temple and bring this entire cosmic restoration. And Paul knew those prophecies. God Himself would come into this temple. While growing up in Tarshish under this Hebraic catechism, we find Him first introduced to us in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, at the feet of which coats were thrown by those who were stoning Stephen, Because in the Jewish mind, Stephen was blaspheming the temple and they had to clean out with great zeal the very things that may hinder the very promise of the Messiah coming in this time. And they were very acutely aware of this. 
And so with great zeal, they were making sure the path was clear and clean for Messiah to come into his temple. The place where God's glory would once again be poured out upon the earth. And it would be so extensive, it would not merely fill the temple, but it would bring a restoration and it would fill the earth as the waters do cover the sea. Where everything here would be renewed and restored. A new heavens and new earth would then be brought together. Well, it all played out exactly like the Bible said it would, but certainly not the way the Jews nor Paul had expected it. Jesus entered the world. And it says, And the Word was God, and the Word came down and tabernacled among us. And the glory of God once again came down into His temple in Jesus. That's not what they were looking for. The one thing that would be least expected of the Jews, of their Messiah would be one that would be taken by Romans and crucified upon the cross. A crucified Messiah? This Messiah rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. By the way, as we read of the Gospel that Christ came and He was crucified according to the Scriptures, and He died and was buried, and He rose again according to the Scriptures, were the Old Testament Scriptures of which Paul was referring to. And then Messiah raised out of the grave, and He then ascended back on high, and He sat down on His throne, and He sent His Spirit out to reign over all of the heavens and the earth. And He says, all authority has been given unto Me in heaven and on earth, therefore go. Now, this is not the way Paul a very devout Jew, had thought about it. It encompassed everything that the Jews had hoped for, but it was so much more than they had ever hoped for. All the rebellion and sin that cast out our first parents from paradise, that brought Israel into exile, had now been dealt with in Jesus. No more exile ever again. No more playing out of the old story that would reveal these things. The new covenant had been inaugurated. There was freedom at last from all of the enemies that had plagued and oppressed God's people. God had come down and begun the process of the new heavens and earth that Isaiah had prophesied about so long ago. In Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, all of the old things of the former life have been passed away. They are gone. We are new creatures. A new creation in Christ. 
The image of God which was marred in the fall is now restored and being restored as God's people united to Christ are putting off the old man and putting on the new. The resurrected Jesus has now broken the dark forces that had held this world in its power. And now all authority has been given to Him to continue to go out and reign until all of the enemies have been brought underneath His feet. And He's doing that through His church. Jesus has empowered His church with the original Dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply. That's what the Great Commission was about. Be fruitful and multiply. Go make disciples of all of the nations, teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is the be fruitful and multiply mandate of taking dominion over this earth so God's glory will go throughout all of the world. That is a hope that is being fulfilled this day. This connecting point, this convergence of of heaven and earth that Isaiah prophesied about, that the Jews longed for and hoped for, this garden paradise which was pictured in symbol and type in the tabernacle, and then subsequently in the permanent form of the tabernacle, the temple. And the tabernacle is where God came down to dwell with His people here upon the earth, and that permanent form in the temple was was built at the very pinnacle of the high point of Israel's world domination and power under David, and then it was built by Solomon in a time of peace. Because of that, Jerusalem itself took on the particular characteristics because it was the place in which the temple dwelt. It was the permanent city. And so it was like the temple expanded or extended to the Jerusalem. And we are to pray then for the peace of Jerusalem. And we talk about the Jerusalem that is above, the mother of us all that the Scriptures say. Paul is using all of these terminology and all of these things. He's just bringing that right into the verbiage of everything that he is expressing that the church is. The temple is the place where God... Glory abided with His people here upon the earth. It is the place where eternal God, the eternity, meets with this finite space and time in this mystical way. This was God's space. The temple was God's space. And the Sabbath was God's time. And God's people were invited to experience and foretaste that promised reality that would one day be theirs. When Jesus arrives on the scene, He enters the temple. And God's glory comes. Verse 15 of our text before us says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's what people do with their temples. They place the images of their gods in their temples. Downtown Nashville, we have a one-to-one replica of the pagan Greek Parthenon. It was a pagan 
Greek temple. In the midst of the Parthenon is this replica of the god, goddess Athena. This is the image of the god. And that's what pagans would do. They would take the image and put the image of of their god in the temple. But putting an image of God in pagan temples was really mimicking what God did when He put the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in the Holy of Holies and put the atoning lid, the golden atoning lid, over the top of it, which was the image of Christ. And all of this would be fulfilled when Jesus stood in the temple and He declared of the physical temple of stones, he says, this temple will be torn down and I will raise it up in three days. This is just a shadow. The reality of the heaven space, the God space, with humanity has now come. And the glory of the Shekinah glory of God has descended. And he's saying, you're looking at it. That's why they mocked him and balked at that thought. But he was referring to the temple of his body. And when he died upon the cross, we know that at the time he died, the the veil was rent in two. And we know from Hebrews that that veil was the flesh of Christ. So that through the very flesh of Christ crucified, we have entrance into the Holy of Holies. No longer is there a shroud between the two. But in Christ, the Shekinah glory goes. And we come this day into the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Today, the church is also called the body of Christ. And it is united inseparably from His corporal body, which is sitting at the right hand of God. This is such a mystery that that's what Paul speaks of it here in Ephesians. This is a mystery but now revealed to you. This union of the two is what makes up the temple of God today where God meets with this temple where God's space and God time come together here upon the earth where heaven comes down and meets in Jesus with His people inseparably united with Christ. Notice there in verse 23 and 24, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is lacking, which is behind, which still has to be filled up of the afflictions, of the sufferings of Christ, in my flesh, Paul says, for His body's sake, which is the church. He's going to marry those ideas together when he says, whereunto I also labor according to His working which worketh in me mightily. The reality of Christ united to His church where God's glory dwelt is what drove the Apostle Paul onward with the same kind of zeal he had as 
a zealot, but now interpreted in the light of Jesus Christ. He then protects the temple. He is fighting for it with the gospel power of the Spirit of God. This is what drove him on. This is why he suffered in his life. This is why he rejoiced to suffer for this cause. And boy, did he suffer. But never without hope. It was this hope that drove him onward. When God's people were gathered on the Lord's day, God time. And we are assembled around the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the image of God in His temple. Know that we are in God's space. And God is among us. And we have a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is where the future is projected back into our present. Our hope is quite opposite of the Greek mindset, which projects into the future. Our future is projected back into the present. And here is where our hope is restored. Here is where our hope is strengthened. Here is where we have a foretaste of that which is to be fulfilled and consummated is tasted of. All the Psalms speak about God hearing His people's prayers, but where does He hear from them? Where does He speak out? He answers them out of Zion. Out of Zion, God will shine forth. God hears His people in the sanctuary. God communes with His people in the congregation of the saints. The psalmist would bring His praises into the congregation, into the assembly. All of these references that reveal where God's glory dwells here on earth can be interpreted in the light of the resurrected Jesus in inseparable union with His church. His body, His body and sacramentally brought together. See, God has broken into this world with His kingdom. The King has come. He is reigning. And He has set up His space here. By the way, This for me personally has been one of the driving principles why we desire to continue to gather physically on the Lord's Day even in light of what's going on around us. This is a driving principle for my zeal. And I pray that God protects it by His grace and with His providence and preserves it. May His will be done. That's why when people were taken away in exile and they were no longer able to have the presence of the temple, they began to realize what they were missing. That's why we have Psalm 137. How can we sing the songs of Zion when we're in a foreign land? 
That should be how we feel when we can't gather together with the saints and the church around His table. There should be a longing for this, but how thankful we are that God is merciful. This is the God place and the God time where we meet and we pray and we praise and we hear and we are fed and we are answered and we relate to God of the universe. This is where we bring forth the praises of creation and unleash them into the presence of God among the angels. This is where we bring the petitions of all of the suffering and we intercede for them in an efficacious way through the high priestlyhood of Jesus Christ. This is where God's glory shines forth. This is where we behold the glory of Jesus, and from glory to glory, change into the likeness. Everything that the Jew had been long awaiting, everything he had hoped for, not only had come to pass, but much, much more. It has begun. We have been living in the already and not yet period of this wonderful time of world history. It has already begun. God's kingdom has broken into the world and is now reigning over all of the nations. And that is why Psalm 2 is so relevant for us to sing today. And warning those nations. Because God's kingdom will prevail. For God is reigning over every detail, and yet it is not yet consummated, but it is still progressing toward its consummated end, so that when Jesus, the King of kings, returns, it will all be glorified. When He returns, He brings heaven down to earth and merges the two together. The ancient garden paradise where men walked with God in the cool of the day is coming back here. The garden will be restored, but it's going to be even better. It will be a glorified city where God dwells in the midst, and He is the light and the glory that shines out, so there there will be no more night. While we're in a slot of time, a, a vignette of history where there is a bit of chaos and uncertainty, it's not a time of hopelessness for the Christian. It's a time where hope is, is, is vibrant and more so than it ever has been before, or it should be. Paul uses this term over 30 times in his epistles. It was not a mere wish. It was not a feeling. It was not an attitude. It wasn't mere optimism. It was a certainty of the future with a positive, glorious outcome which he lived in the light of and brought it into his present experience that fueled his zeal even in the face of the harshest times of life so that you and I can taste of it. Hope is that settled, unwavering confidence that this God will never leave us nor forsake us. but will always have more in store than we can possibly ask or think. It will be better than anything you can imagine. It is worth living for and dying for and giving for and suffering for. And a greater hope we should have than any of those saints of the Old Testament. 
Our hope, our expectation of the future is not merely based on what God had promised will come about and show tokens of those graces along the way, but our hope is based on historical facts which has already transpired in Jesus Christ. In His death and His resurrection and what has happened now in history gives me the basis for what will happen in the future with all the certainty. The place where He says what's before us is a seal of that promise and not just a sign. God has taken hold of this world in a new way through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 26, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages, from generations, but now is manifest to His saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope is based upon the entire mystery of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness that God manifested in the flesh. Dying a propitiatory death, being raised from the dead and united to His people by the Holy Spirit. And the new creation has, in fact, already begun. The image of God is being Restored and continuing to being restored in His people upon the earth. God dwells with us here upon the earth and is inseparably united with His people. This mystery was not merely for the Jews. But thankful, it went out through all of the Gentile worlds and the nations. It has now been revealed that this is the plan of God from the beginning. And He has brought it to pass according to the Scriptures. What God desires to do in all of this is to make known the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles so that the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters do cover the seas. Comprehensive, exhaustive, encompassing glory. And that hope of glory is Christ in you. What he means here is that your expectation as a Christian of this future glory brought into complete consummation is contained and maintained and is made sure and certain in this fact that Christ is in you. Now here he is not speaking about Christ united to the individual Christian, though that is certainly a part of it, and other passages of Scripture do speak of that important truth. But here he is speaking about Christ in His temple, Christ and His body, Christ and His church. He is speaking about the glory of God being manifest in Christ In you, His body. In the church. Christ inseparably united to the church here and now. That is the hope of glory. It provides the basis for the certain expectation of our future inheritance. 
that which is projected back into our experience today as we now take of the Lord's Supper. This Christian hope is fixed upon God. Not what we read in the headlines. It embraces three elements that we have to maintain all at the same time. An expectation of the future according to His Word. A trust in God. And a patience of waiting. Patience. That, that's, that's where we don't do so well. Patience. Quiet patience. We wait patiently. By the Spirit of God and His grace, we persevere, knowing God will bring it to pass exactly like He said it would, but it'll be more glorious than you can ever imagine. And that's just the way it always works. Beyond what you can ask or think is how he puts it. So what does that mean for us today in the context in which we're living? This virtue that is associated with with love and faith and hope. These three abide. What did this mean for the Apostle Paul? Well, it meant he was willing to suffer greatly for it. For now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions for Christ, for his body's sake, which is the church, that's you. That's what the Apostle Paul was willing to do. So following Paul's example, which was really following Christ's example, Let us too be willing to love our neighbor and to trust God and to suffer for this great hope. Let us press on in the work of the kingdom and let us give ourselves to the work and the sufferings that still remain and that need to be filled up until Christ returns and wipes away every tear and dries every eye. The work of the kingdom for us today is to be about living our lives in sacrificial love and trusting God firmly and hoping in His plan and promises certainly. And this will have a lasting effect. Your good works that God has already foreordained and you are to faithfully walk in, then they will have a lasting effect all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. They're a part of it. As the Scripture says, that after they have been tried with fire, and some will be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, but others will abide. Revelation says that for those that come into the new heavens, and the, their, their works follow after them. And this is what the world needs today. They need hope. And you have it in you. Right here with us today, the hope that overshadows all of the earthly problems because God's people and His kingdom will not be defeated. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The hope of glory is Christ in us. Love, faith, hope. These three still abide. 
These are the Christian virtues that the world needs and which we should be growing in. So may Christ be glorified in these dire and uncertain times to bring His people hope so that they can take the hope to the world who longs for it but does not yet know it. Our gracious Father, we thank You for this message from the Word that engenders and stirs up in us a great praise for the hope that is in us and the reality that has already come in Christ Jesus but is not yet completed and consummated. We are thankful that You have You have desired for us to live in this time of history, in this place of history. We're thankful that even as this pandemic breaks out all around us, that You've given us hope that far surpasses the concerns and worries and fears about it. Because Your kingdom will endure and it will far outweigh it. Far outlast it. And so may we be about the business of loving and the exercises of faith and obedience to the Gospel and with hope, knowing where You're all taking it. And grant, O Lord, we pray, that You would encourage our hearts today. That as our hope increases, our worries and anxiety will be lessened. And we pray we'd be faithful to share this hope with the world who so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.